Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson III, author of the new book, All Falling Faiths, Reflections on the Promise and Failure of the 1960s. Judge Wilkinson serves on the Fourth Circuit of the United States Court of Appeals, a position to which he was appointed by President Ronald Reagan in 1984. He was Chief Judge of the Fourth Circuit from 1996 to 2003. Previously, he was Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. His most recent book is Cosmic Constitutional Theory, Why Americans Are Losing Their Inalienable Right to Self-Governance. Judge Wilkinson, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Judge, your book is part memoir and part political and social commentary. At its most pessimistic parts, I would say it reads like an elegy, for America, but at the same time, you find optimism in the spirit of the 1960s and clearly hope that we can rekindle some of that optimism but infuse it with the virtues of the past. What compelled you to write this book at this time? Well, um, I early got the idea that um, I w- it would be a pure memoir. And um, I, I I started on it just by collecting fragment, fragmentary notes uh, over really almost 50 years. And I wanted to do that because I knew so little of my um, grandparents and nothing at all of my great-grandparents. And I felt this emptiness about it. And I thought, well, uh, I don't want my grandchildren and great-grandchildren to know nothing about their ancestors who 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 put us uh, really put us on this earth? So that's how it all got started. Is that kind of a memoir? But then, as I got as I started collecting it and reconstructing the memoir and trying to make um, uh, some sense of it, I realized it couldn't just be a memoir. That that I couldn't discuss the 1960s and the 1950s without discussing their impact upon the present day. And particularly, I mean, when I, when I left the 1960s, I thought they were in the rearview mirror. I thought I'd left them behind for good. Um, and these last two or three years, it's as though they've come rushing back. And um, it's like they were only in remission. And uh, so much of what... I have uh, seen has been a, a bit of a flashback and um, a, a replay of that very tumultuous decade. And so I, what I really wanted to do is to say, um, look, uh, this is what it was like to go through the 1960s. And in many ways, it was not at all a good experience. And so I wanted to... Uh, you know, talk about people who talk with people who had been through it along with me and see if their impressions coincided with my own. And I wanted to implore uh, upcoming generations um, n- n- not to go to learn from our experience, not to go through this again, um, because the 60s took so many, uh, deprived us of so many values. Uh, and diminish so many institutions and introduce so much rancor. And there's only so much of this uh, recurring rancor um, that even a great country like ours can sustain. And 
one of the areas where we've seen probably the most tumult, and it seemingly is just a a self-perpetuating vicious cycle, is in the first section that your book focuses on, which is education. And I think that's not coincidental at all, given the importance of ideas in the direction of a society. And in particular, you talk about your experience as an undergraduate at Yale University, where you graduated in 1967, which I think is a good proxy for the American education system more broadly. It sort of set the standard, set the direction uh, that we've seen over the last 50 years. And if I were to, to distill it, I would say that you describe a campus where emotion trumped reason and all of the classical liberal ideas of the past were turned on their heads. What made the education of the 60s a toxic inflection point in U.S. history? Well, it, part of it was was simply the um, spirit of intolerance that took hold and the um, really um, sometimes violent means by which the intolerance was carried out. And so the, the techniques of intimidation in higher education were were pioneered in the 1960s, people grabbing uh, speakers' microphones and shouting them down and and not listening and sitting in in uh, administration buildings and closing classes. And so you 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 had this rising tide of intolerance, um, which is so contrary to the spirit of free speech and the First Amendment. And uh, that's continued on to the present day where um, people try their best to disinvite uh, graduation speakers and to uh, uh, shout shout down views they don't agree with. But there was a broader problem, uh, apart from the sheer um, lack of, of tolerance, which was bad enough. The broader problem was the, this intense negativity that was introduced by the 1960s toward uh, this wonderful country of ours. And it took place uh, on several fronts. Um, Number one, that the uh, American history was spun into a a narrative of solely oppression. And uh, gosh knows we've made our mistakes and such things as, as... as slavery and segregation are shameful chapters in our history, but there's there's also so much good about what this country stands for in its history, and the, this this Constitution that we have, and and we have lit the beacon of freedom throughout the world. We pioneered the Bill of Rights. We've worked with a a democratic system which gives people say over their own destiny. We've uh, had a system of capitalism that's brought a, a great general prosperity to our country and to a greater extent to the world. And during the 1960s, the good side of the American story was neglected. And it just became one long thing about how we had oppressed, which had a germ of truth, but which was was totally unbalanced. It didn't, it didn't say the good things for which America stood and for which I believe it continues to stand. And the other thing, the other negativity about the 1960s um, had to do with the private sector. 
uh, it's because so in so many of my classes, um, government was exalted uh, because it reigned in the private sector, and it was like the private sector could only do bad, that all it was was predatory, um, and that it that these captains of industry uh, ground down employees and uh, polluted the land and everything. And, and the private sector has its problems, and some degree of regulation is necessary to curb its excesses. But it's also been a wonderful engine of job creation and of inventiveness, and uh, it's it's uh, brought consumers an extraordinary uh, uh, array of, of 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 goods. And uh, I I grew up with a, in a family which uh, they they were bankers and. Um, you know, I saw the way it operated, and it made a lot of things, those banks made a lot of things possible for a lot of people. And so when I got into these classes uh, at Yale, they were just running the private sector down. Now, if you run down American history, and you run down the private sector, and you find nothing but things to complain about, that's not good. You have to have balance, and that's what was lacking. It was just all so negative about America. And, you know, that, that, that eventually just saps a nation's morale. And what's so ironic about it is that you talk about in the book sort of a nihilism, a pervasive nihilism, and also, of course, a, a moral relativism that existed in the 60s and, and continues to this day, which would say that there is no such thing as good and evil yet labels all of those fundamental American institutions evil. And so then you have to question, what is the good for people who are moral relativists and say there should be no black or white, good or bad? Well, that was another, that was another problem, is that on the one hand, there were these judgments um, that were um, thrown up and, and America was painted in, in these dark tones, um, and on the other hand, um, uh, everything was, <clears throat> was sort of relative and, um, we lost, uh, many of the values that were sort of the stars that, that guided us. Um, we lost, uh, a, a sense, I think of, um, uh, a proper comportment and, and, uh, in in relations between the the uh, the sexes, uh, the family unit was weakened to some extent. Um, religious faith was weakened uh, to some extent. Um, our uh, capacity for national unity was impaired. So it, it was like these sorts of values for which you know they weren't perfect, and nobody. Nobody can live by these aspirational values every day of the week, but they were good values, and they anchored us, and they they gave us a sense of, of orientation and constancy and something uh, really to live for and guide our lives for, and those were uh, just um, undermined. So it just, it, your questions point up, the the fact 
that there's so much cumulative damage that was done by that decade. But I didn't want to just shout at people about this kind of thing. I want to talk to them and go hand in hand with them and try to persuade. And so I felt I could do that with a, a memoir which was as personal and as intimate as, as I could make it and said, look, this is how it was to to live through those days. And, and I hope you'll take this, this journey uh, with me. I'm not rushing to the barricades. I'm not, I'm not going to shout. I just, I just want you to, to, um, you know, sit down with me or walk with me and, and, and I, I just wanted to make it personal because there's been uh, it's, it's it's such a volatile subject and you can't bring it up at at a at a dinner party um, without sending everybody into a spiral. And so I said I can't I don't want to do that. Um, I want to. Uh, I, I, I just want to make it a, a personal journey, um, and I want the reader to to come along with me. And um, at the end of the day, I uh, I would hope that we that, that that we could all see both sides of the '60s argument, um, uh, and that maybe some people that that feel that the '60s was the greatest thing ever um, might at least listen to my views that I think it inflicted incalculable damage upon this society. And, but, you know, I'm, I'm up for listening too, because I don't think we can ever come together as a country and repair the damage uh, that the 1960s did to us unless we become a nation of listeners and um, speak in a little softer tones. <laughs> so that's why I settled on the memoir form. Judge, you took up the law at a time when, as you describe it, America witnessed, and I'm quoting here, lawlessness writ large. Speak a little bit about your legal education and and also uh, your run for the Congress, which was a very interesting little vignette in and of itself. Uh, Speak a little bit about that episode in your life and the broader ramifications that you took from it. Uh, Well, I... I, I I, I thought people ought to be engaged in in um, uh, activism in a good way, and um, so uh, people were so often rather than all this uh, shouting and and trying to uh, vilify the country and everything. My and my thought was, well, what I ought to do is get involved in the. Uh, in the democratic process and, and try to pers- persuade folks that even with this youthful generation that they were so worried about that we, we could make a constructive contribution by working within the system. And I thought a good way for me to proceed was to uh, try to run for Congress. And I, I, I was only 25 years old and um, it was, I barely met the uh, age limit but um, I, I won the Republican nomination, and then I uh, faced a, a, a three-term Democratic incumbent, and um, I, it was it was uh, tough sledding back then to be to be a Republican in the South. And so my opponent had this uh, 
uh, really uh, tagline which he put on all his billboards and his ads. And he said, send Satterfield back to Congress and Wilkinson back to school because I was a young guy and, and I looked young. And the uh, I, I had uh, taken a sabbatical from law school to run for, for Congress and uh, everybody, even the consultants to my campaign were were so worried about me being so young they <laughs> they wouldn't even they didn't want to use a picture they wanted to use an etching for me and then they wanted to surround me completely by senior citizens to indicate that I wasn't some sort of radical <laughs> and I wasn't out to overthrow anybody but I lost about the you know the, the two to one. Um, well, maybe it was even three to one. I don't know, but it wasn't close. And um, but am I glad I did it? Absolutely, because uh, to my way of thinking, this was a really diversified and pluralistic country, and the best way for me to uh, learn about people outside my own little sphere was to go um, run. Uh, run for public office and and talk to people uh, on the street and at their offices and do handshaking tours and listen to what they had to say and uh, go into uh, ethnic communities and, and into the African American community and and uh, and and try to get a sense of what the country was. Now. One of the things that you talk about at length in the book is the perversion of undergraduate education, and we've seen that there are all manner of dubious legal theories that have been developed in the time since the 60s as well, probably just subsequent to your time in law school. Do you see a parallel trajectory there? And also, having served in the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division and seeing where it is today, does that in some sense, affirm your worst fears about what has become of the law? Well, it, um, I, I, I became very concerned about what had happened to the law uh, during the 1960s and in, in several ways. Um, one was simply that the... Um, uh, there, there were these um, really terrible riots that um, took place in, uh, particularly in the summer of 1964, 1965, in Harlem, and Detroit, and Watts, um, and uh, and and Rochester, uh, and then um, there were these. Uh, terrible assassinations of John and Robert Kennedy and and of Martin Luther King and 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 those just uh, shook us uh, enormously. Uh, it's hard to imagine how traumatic it was to see these very inspiring figures um, just shot dead. It was the effect on us was just incalculable. And then on the other side. Uh, if you have these riots that unfortunately visited, you know, just 
really deprives shopkeepers of their stores and harm passing motorists and threw rocks at police. But on the other hand, you had uh, whole police departments uh, careening out of control. And uh, that happened in in Birmingham, and it happened in Chicago at the 1968 Democratic Convention, and it happened in um, Stonewall, and it happened at Kent State. And so you had the law that was just assaulted from both sides, from the people that were supposed to obey it and the people that were charged with enforcing it. And something of that uh, is is taking place today. I was I was I was so concerned and disappointed to, about the riots in Ferguson and in Baltimore because, uh, and I was so upset about some police actions that were simply not justified. And this is not the way to go. Violence is never the way to go. The, the, this great strides in the 60s were made peacefully with the march on Washington in 1963 and the march from Selma to, to Montgomery. And, uh, but this violence, as the decade went on, this violence is su- supplanted it. And it, uh, it, it's a great concern of mine that we're seeing a lot of the, uh, a lot of the same things, that people in the 1960s, they felt if they thought something was right, that they were justified in taking the law into their own hands. And that's proved a contagious principle around the globe. And, you know, you saw it in, in, in 9-11 and its long aftermath that if I have a particular vision um, of, of an ideal society and if I think I'm right, then I can go to all sorts of lengths in harming other people. And that's a pernicious notion and it's what the 1960s um, set in motion. And so all of, all of this lawlessness and the idea of taking law into their own hands has become even more dangerous uh, today than, than in the decade that gave it birth because the advent of social media uh, has provided an amplification for those who have been on 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 violence, social media is good in many many so many ways, but it can amplify violent acts and and uh, the means of carrying out violence have become so much more lethal, and so you have these sixties theories about about law, which is that we don't have to obey it if we don't agree with it. And that is that just undercuts the rule of law completely because it's a social compact, and law is is really means nothing if we only have to obey uh, those things that that we find uh, agreeable. And and but but given the increase in the le- lethal nature of uh, of. Of, of weaponry and and terrorism, and given the way that the media amplifies um, some of the lawlessness that that takes place, we are we are faced with the with a trend that the 1960s um, helped to set in motion, 
and it I, I think has become um, has become so much so much worse. Judge Wilkinson, you grew up uh, in the South at a time when the South was segregated, but there were still these sort of romantic traditional values and, and principles of chivalry and duty and family and the like. And then you went up to Yale and before that uh, Lawrenceville, a, uh, a prep school in New Jersey, and you talk about the loss of home. Speak a little bit to how the loss of home fits into your overall thesis. Well, it, um, I, I came to... Um, when I went north, I, I recognized um, that that there were, along with the good in which I grew up, that there were many, um, so many wrong things about the segregated South, and and uh, I began to uh, to to see them. Um, just the things in in daily life that were wounding and dehumanizing to um, African Americans, and it must have hurt them uh, a very a very great deal. And in in the in my my boyhood, there wasn't a lot of coarse language, uh, thankfully, but but there were just uh, little daily customs that must have just cut deep and so it, it when I went to Lawrenceville and went to Yale I, I had a different perspective um, on on the south and I began uh, to really see the wrongs of of segregation and I talked to a lot of uh, friends and they they said, uh, even some of my professors and some of my contemporaries said that given the wrongs of a segregated system, they just could not go back south again. They were, they were, had left the south and they were going to spend um, their lives in the uh, rest of the country. You, you saw some of that in Willie Morris's wonderful memoirs called North, North Toward Home. Um, but you know the with for all its flaws, the South was my home um I was gonna go back there because whatever else home is um it's le- at least it's you. I was gonna do what I could to make sure that we saw every citizen um as someone worthy of the greatest respect and dignity um so it wasn't I just wasn't going to abandoned my childhood because along with all the great evil of segregation, I had um, wonderful parents who cared, raised me uh, with all the caring you could ever imagine. Um, I had friends. I had witnessed many acts of kindness. Um, and my my region of the country uh, believed in neighbors helping neighbors and they believed in strong religious faith and they believed in uh in country and and in a in, in a man's duty to serve um one's country they believed in in uh in 
encouraged. They believed in in truth telling. Um, so I tried to put my boyhood back in balance. I had lost much in the sense of home, but I also wasn't about to throw it overboard because the South, along with its flaws, had many, many virtues. And no person is ever perfect, and no region is ever perfect. And it's this idea you have to keep things in balance. And so it's the same way with America. If we can, if we can, if we can broaden that notion, many of us have seen the flaws in America. But does that mean we abandon America as our home? No. Just as with my own boyhood, you have to recognize the good along with the bad. And that's true with America, and and there's so much good along with the mistakes we've made. And so when I wrote this, thinking about it, we're not a sinning nation and we're not a sainted nation, but we sure are a nation that's tried. We have tried to get things right. We have stood for good values across the globe, and we have tried to get things right at home, and and we have made great progress in civil rights and in 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 social welfare and many other nations. So we have to see ourselves not as a sainted nation nor as one that only sins, but as a country that's tried. We've tried. And, and Judge, another section of your book, and I think it ties in well to, to the argument you just put forth is you say, and I quote, the spirit of patriotic sacrifice and universal service is not what it once was. The 60s saw to that, unquote. How do we rekindle uh, a love of country and a belief in duty to one's country in a time where, as you say today, most Americans are largely removed from war, whereas in the Vietnam era, Everyone knew someone, essentially, who was either being drafted into the war or, or conversely, and you describe uh, this in the book, trying to avoid being conscripted into the Army. Well, I think a, a big part of it is, uh, is trying to recover respect for people who are quite different from ourselves. And um, one thing in the 1960s uh, that, that I was that upset me a great deal because it's, it's also carried over, uh, is that many of the young elites and, and, and the, uh, many of, many of us who were, were privileged, we, we looked down at, we looked down on people that were making wonderful contributions to this country. We, we looked down on the folks who wore the hard hats, uh, and we looked down on people who were in uniform, and we thought that you know that that we somehow were making a greater contribution to society than they were. When it, it, it that's just not absolutely not the case. And the uh, the earnestness with which uh, the working classes uh, work and earn a living for their families and hold down jobs that are important to this country and and the the bravery that we saw 
on the part of first responders and continue to see in, in times of emergency. Um, there's so much reason to respect one another, and there was no reason for what happened in the 1960s, which was to uh, look down on fellow Americans just because they weren't as affluent as we were or they didn't have the education level that we did. Um, and so I try to point out in the in the um, when, when I went into the uh, to basic training um, it, it, I, I was guilty of this along with other people because I I looked I I looked down on this sergeant uh, and I, I tell about it in very personal terms this sergeant who was um, it, it, making me go crawl through one too many sawdust pits and. Uh, get up at an, an un, at an ungodly hour and 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 run until I was ready to drop and march until I was ready to drop. And you know, I I thought he hated me. Um, and then I thought, you know, it's all come back. And even at the end of basic training, I said, no, this man is has it did not hate me. Um, he was doing everything he could to save my life. And that's what I'm talking about with these with these uh, class divisions. We often look for the bad in other people instead of looking for the good um, in our, in our uh, fellow citizens. And this, this class division that was set in motion um, in the 1960s uh, has carried through to through throughout in our history we saw these class divisions emerge in the election of 1972 we saw them emerge in the election of 1980 we've seen them emerge in the election of 2016 and they've been sown and they're not good and what i worry about is if america at some point faces an existential threat, and we have really got to come together to face it. Can we still do it? And I hope so, but I don't know. And I was saddened by the fact that the camaraderie after 9-11 was so fleeting um, and passed so, so quickly. So I just hope that we haven't lost the ability to unite if one day, or I should say when one day, we're going to absolutely have to. My last question was going to be, have the 60s triumphed? But I think that you kind of answered that in in your final response. Uh, so I hope, as well as you, that, that we can recover some of the core values and principles that have eroded but it does feel as if we're fighting a losing battle sometimes well it's important always to hold out hope because seeing all that's bad around us should never extinguish hope for what can be good my feeling is the 60s inflicted great bad but they also gave us some good and how do we preserve the good and and recover from the bad and I I just I don't think that we can ever lose hope in this wonderful country because it's the best country that is that ever was and our our great leaders 
um, Ronald Reagan and Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, and and Lincoln and 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 Kennedy and Washington had hope and faith in America, and the very least we owe to them is to carry that hope and faith forward. The name of the book is All Falling Faiths, Reflections on the Promise and Failure of the 1960s, and we've been speaking with its author, Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson III. Judge Wilkinson, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Viles Freeway.